This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For your free trial, plus 10% off anything you buy, please visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? Oh, I missed you. I know. You're back. I'm almost back. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can you expand on that a little? Well, I don't, I don't feel 100% back. I'm leaving again in a, in a couple of days to do some more cross-country uh, airplane flights, mm. which is my number one job. Ugh. Cross-country airplane flights. So I'm here, but I feel I feel like a dead man walking a little bit. I got to get on an airplane. I got to go do some more dumb shit. It's like you're on parole from a plane, right? I'm on. <laughs> that's right. I got a I got a three day pass from my airplane, mm-hmm. and now I uh, can just I can walk around. I can breathe the normal air. I can see the flowers blooming. Every minute feels like a lifetime. Oh, it's almost it's almost uh, it's worse than just being on the plane. Because uh, you know what it plane. is? That's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was <laughs> not having your flights contiguous. <laughs> My goodness! I thought you know the thing is before I had a child I would have just stayed back on the East Coast for the last week and I would have just gone to cafes and I would have uh, I would have gone to other cafes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What I, would have, I would have eaten a lot of roast beef sandwiches. Is what you would have had done. time to do all those things that you just don't have time to do now. You could start and maintain some new social media accounts. Mm-hmm. You could oh. you could uh, uh, read and or write uh, mm. a book. Mm. Right? You probably don't have the reading time that you that you used to. Uh, uh, Yeah, I could go to Rockefeller Center and and spin around and and throw my hat in the air. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Thinking that you were in Minneapolis? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, everywhere you go, uh, if you throw your hat in in the air, you're in Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah. And and you could skate? Yeah, they probably they they probably don't have the skating yet. It's probably kind of hot for skating. uh, I dated a gal uh, one time many years ago who had a picture of herself skating you know, with kind of one leg lifted in the air and her hands mm. up in the air uh, in front of Rockefeller Center. And it was right on her desk. She, uh, and it was, it was right on her desk and it was facing out. It wasn't, she, it wasn't one that she was looking at. It was one she wanted you to see. I don't mean to get all roll on Barth here, but that's, that's, there's a lot of signification in that. So she had, she had a picture of herself skating on one leg that she liked. That's right. But she wanted you to see it. Right. She had a Dorothy Hamill haircut. Which helped the presentation of the whole photograph. Mm-hmm. And she happened to be my guidance counselor. <laughs> uh, when I was in college, I was... Oh, is it, that? Is it that guidance counselor? Yeah, yeah, she was, whatever, 39. Yeah, she was, she, uh, she was a little, little person, right? She was... Well, <laughs> Was she like, was she like super dinklage? Was she? She, how- she was a diminutive woman, but mm. she wasn't. Uh, she uh, uh, she did not have a chromosomal smallness. <laughs> I think the term is spinner. She was a. She, I don't. I do not think the term is spinner. Okay. She was probably four foot eleven. Nice. Four foot. <laughs> that's half. about. That's about half of your height. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, when you when you. When you consider that at the time I was teasing my hair up pretty yeah, big. Yeah, and you, you'd always wear a small heel. 
Uh-huh. You know, yeah. yeah. No, well, logger boots were all the all the rage at the time. Sure, I, I, man, I think that's super interesting. I don't want to derail you, John, but uh, no, 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 it's okay. The stuff that we put on our desk to have people, you know, ostensibly make comments about, you know, it's like I feel this way about people with big dogs and funny T-shirts. Like when somebody's got a big dog, or in San Francisco, as you know, two or more of the exact same large dog. Mm-hmm. Afghans know. are very yeah. popular in San Francisco. Yes, they're both Belgian Taverns. Is that okay with you? It's an Akita and another oh, Akita. God, he's so mean, that your guy. guy. Your guy. Me. He's, so, he's so cynical and he's bored. He's got a lot of reasons to be angry, and just <laughs> a couple are bubbling up to the surface like a hot soup. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Is this your crosswalk? Should I have had some kind of a uh, applied for a lease to be here? Someone or someone just just recently tweeted us asking us to DS our show. Yeah, and I think you just gave them a lifetime of of uh, uh, post traumatic stress Excuse disorder. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You and your you and your hate mobile just be parked here in the in the crosswalk for the rest of the day, and I guess I'll just go walk into traffic if that's okay with you. So your feeling is that people with two dogs are that they are they're going to all the expense and trouble of caring for and feeding and cleaning up the poop of yes two giant dogs for the express purpose of inspiring you to ask them a question about them. I don't want to say it's the express purpose, but it's like having a Unix joke on your T-shirt, where I guess the hope is that somebody else. Who's a Unix person will look at look and like give you a little head nod or something, right? But you know, when you ask somebody to explain, like you know, uh, there's no place like one nine two dot one. You know, it's like what what is that? I, okay. I, I crave a head nod from a Unix person. <laughs> I, I, my whole life, I've never gotten a head nod. You just say uh, sudo head nod. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, but no, no, but here's the thing is like, you know, I got a kid and we walk around and we like dogs and we yeah. don't, we don't, we don't, she knows how to approach a dog if the owner says it's okay. But we'll sometimes say, Hey, that's really cool. Yeah. You have, you've got a, uh, you've got a, uh, what's the giant Marmaduke dog? You've got a, uh, great, great Dane, and you've got a, like a Shih Tzu. That's really yeah, that's, fun. That's, that's hilarious. And they'll be like, and here's me rolling my eyes. Ugh. You know, oh, like, if wow, you're they're already w- bored of, the, of, of how hilarious it is that they did this hilarious. I just thing. think you shouldn't be surprised <laughs> that people are going to. You know, it's like the uh, it's like the dad says in uh, what was it, Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, where he says, you know, if you put out those those signals, people are going to pick up on that. If you get nice. a big jo- dog and a tiny dog, people are going to ask. If you have a picture you're of yourself, about Harry Dean Stanton now. Harry Dean Stanton was Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know. I'm just saying, if you got a picture of yourself ice skating on one leg and you're four foot eleven, don't be surprised if people want to make remarks. Well, see, and the thing is, I, sometimes I worry that my entire house and really my entire existence is just uh, like trolling for that kind of that for for. I'm just waiting for the question. You know, like why else do you put framed Romanian train tickets on your mantelpiece? Unless you want somebody to say, what are these? Hmm. And then the problem is I do not roll my eyes. No, no I, don't, I, don't even don't lump yourself in with those. You, you I are... leap up from the couch <laughs> and vault across the room. Pull what out are the, those, you ask? Pull out the telescoping po- <laughs> uh, pointer that you always have in your waistcoat. <laughs> well, the lights <laughs> all work. <laughs> slide no you 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 uh i mean you've given me uh uh tours of of seattle whether i wanted it or not they were very enthusiastic no i did want them you're really good you're good at explaining what this body of water means and you like and you like people asking about your train tickets and i think that's exactly what it's there for if i had a giant marmaduke dog and uh, then a small purse dog 
I would, I think I would be aware that I was doing that for a reason. I was doing that to attract attention, not because I just happened to like these two specific breeds of dogs that happened to be at the ends of the dog scale. Right. The dog continuum. Well, I mean, it seems like you at the very least would get used to it. And I mean, it's not like you have like a horrible facial disfiguration and you have to explain it your train accident or something. But you know, the other one is, as I've said, I think this is, this is the Venn diagram on this is pretty perfect for people who wear utility kilts because mm-hmm. every person I've ever met, every man I've met who wears a utility kilt is also super into talking about his utility kilt. Hmm. I met a man on a trail just yesterday. Hmm. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Day before. I, I you're, went you're down, not really all the way back yet. I know. It's hard to know where I am. I went down to the um, Nisqually River Delta at sundown, and I was walking along the trail, and I noticed some beaver, some actual real-life beaver, right off in the, in the water next to the trail, and I stopped to look at them. I got a tail slap for the, for the, for the privilege of, of watching them beave. And uh, then along the trail comes a guy in a utility kilt with a large camera bag and a fairly flourishing mustache. Check. And we and he stopped and he was and he was you know it's like it's pretty isolated out there. Toe shoes. They have the like, they have the Vibram toe shoes. You know when I when I looked down and I got to utility kilt, I, my eyes went right back up. I didn't go all the way to the shoes. And uh, he stopped and we chatted and he said, they're close. You know, this is one of these, this is one of these um, parks where at sundown they close and the threat is that they're going to lock the gate and lock you in. That's kind of a threat that they do at some of the parks out here. Like sundown gate is locked Hmm. and then you have to call and maybe they'll come. Maybe Mm. they won't. So he's like, I got, we're getting out of here because the gate is closing. I was like, oh, damn it. And we stopped and looked at the beavers. And there was just something, he was emanating vibe that was the equivalent of like if he had a foam trucker hat on that said, ask me about my utility kilt. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I think I wanted to communicate to him that I was a sophisticated guy. I was from Seattle, Washington. I didn't need to, anything there was to know about a utility kilt, I already knew. And, and, And we're okay with I was accepting of it in the same way as I would be if he had a facial disfiguration from a train accident. (laughs) This episode of Roderick on the Line is once again sponsored by our very good friends at Squarespace. You know Squarespace? It is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. And they make the process so simple. They offer an easy drag-and-drop interface that has beautiful free templates you can tweak to suit your needs. All the Squarespace 6 designs are responsive, so they look great on every device. Also, can I just say, guys, podcasting. Podcasting. Let me remind you that Squarespace is the easiest way that I know of to set up and host your own podcast. Believe me, I know whereof I speak because, as with every episode of Roderick on the Line, the very show you're enjoying right now lives on Squarespace. That's just how we roll. All you got to do is upload your audio file, you attach it to a new post, and boom, you are doing big-time podcasting. It's that simple. Guys, I've been at this stuff for almost a decade now. I honestly can't imagine an easier way to do it. 
If you're ready to get started, Squarespace plans start at only $8 per month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which is a very good idea. Please do remember to tell Squarespace that you heard about them from your pals at Roderick on the Line, because listeners of this program get a free trial plus 10% off any package they choose by using the special offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. Our thanks to Squarespace for all their great support with Roderick on the Line. We could not do it without them. <laughs> I'm trying to you think. You give him the head nod. I'm trying to think of what kind of train accident would produce just a facial injury. I imagine like, you, 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 it stops kind of fast and it, it, it hits your fancy wine glass. Oh, I see. I see. I had a dream last night that I was on an airplane, like a small two-propeller Beechcraft Bonanza-style airplane mm-hmm. with some friends, and then right on the final approach, it suddenly spun into a dive and crashed in a lake. Mm. And then I was suddenly alone on the plane. All of the friends that I was there with before were gone, and I was struggling to get out of this plane underwater. Oh, God. Yeah, I made it. You've been flying a lot. Oh my God! I didn't even. I did not even make the connection. I know it's a little. It's a little bit on the nose. It probably means something about sex or your teeth or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, that's horrible. And so, did you did you make it out? I did make it out. I'm here to podcast with you. It's you, but it's not you, and it's a podcast, but not a podcast. <laughs> Paul is dead. Twenty eight F. Twenty eight F. Oh, that's so funny. You should say that. I was re uh, rereading the uh, the Playboy interview with. Uh, John and his wife the other day. Oh yeah, and what did you discover? He's irascible. Yeah, he's he does not want to talk about his dogs. He does not want to talk about his kilt, and he definitely does not want to talk about the Beatles. No, I watched an interview, uh, like a interview that was done by what a Serbian television show, uh, an interview of Sean Lennon, uh, and after like the twentieth question about his dad. He kind of had a fit and had to like collect himself and and walk around the block or whatever. Really? I, and, I mean, I, I sound surprised, but I'm not. I I would be so. I mean, anything even vague. Imagine being like what, like Jeff Emmerich or, or Neil Aspinall. Like at some point, yeah, you're into like telling your war stories, but at a certain point, you might be, yeah, you want to talk about what I've done since the mid '60s. Yeah, and so and this was you know Sean was on tour with his band playing oh, a show no. in in uh, you know somewhere in the Balkans, and this TV personality really wanted to interview him and really wanted to know about his dad. And on the one hand, you have I mean the one on one hand, I had a ton of sympathy for him, but on the other hand, it's like it's like a. a Sean Lennon was born with a great Dane in one hand. Yep. And a big sh- dog. He's already and got a big shih tzu dog. in the other. <laughs> and that's a little bit know, ping pong if you're talking about Yoko. He's got a he's got he's got basically got a facial deformity which mm. is uh that he that yeah, one of his arms is John Lennon and one of them is is Yoko. <laughs> like how do you First of all, how do you deal with a facial deformity that's on your arms? I would not want an arm made of Yoko. <laughs> and second of all, like there's just no like Jeff Emmerich at least can go into a bar and sit down and just be a bloke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a good point. That's a good point. 
but Sean just, you know, like, and, and I feel like he's probably spent his whole life insulating himself. I mean, I know for a fact he has on the Lower East Side, surrounded by like uber hipster musicians who just, you know, like play toy instruments and and get do graffiti or whatever it is that young people do. Well, it's like, it's like the, this is, you must run into this all the time in the circles you move in, but there's the one kind of cool of going like, hey, I know this, uh, I know this guy who's really famous, but the even cooler thing is like, I know this guy is really famous, but we never talk about it. Yeah, we never talk about it. We would never, I mean, I know people who play, who have played with, uh, with Sean Lennon. And of course, after, you know, after the initial, it's like going to a nude beach, like mm. the, after the first 15 minutes of being on a nude beach, you're no longer scandalized. And after 30 minutes on a nude beach, you feel like, oh, why am I wearing clothes? Why did I come to the nude beach and wear clothes? Now I feel like an idiot. And after 45 minutes on a nude beach, you're like, why, why do any of us wear clothes ever? Mm. And hanging out with somebody like Sean Lennon, it's exactly like that. Like the, After 15 minutes, you're like, oh, why am I wearing clothes? But also, like, you know, it's it's rough because, like, even in reading this interview from 1980, it was in Playboy, I think, yeah, Playboy, and uh, it's a pretty famous interview from around the time Double Fantasy came out, and and you know, the interviewer is pretty dogged about pursuing, you know, his sure. line of questioning, and one, of course, the Beatles keep coming up, but he also calls John on that whole thing of of saying that something along the lines of he thinks of Sean as his like first son, as like the uh-huh. first, and I think you know, like with so many things. John said, I mean, I, you know, he, he's, he's provocative. He talks off the cuff. And when you take it out of context, he sounds like a dick because he's kind of a dick. Yeah. But I think what he partly meant was like the, with the whole thing with Cynthia, like that was not a great relationship. This is the first time I feel like I've got a kid that's mine from the beginning and all the way through. But he did, he said, yeah, well, that's how it does feel. You know, yeah, so well, so Sean's got to hold up the mantle of being like when he whoa trotted out by Yoko in the working class hero uh, shirt, and like he's got to hold up the mantle of talking about his father that everybody loves and misses, and that would suck. That would be so fun for like a week when you're 14, but imagine being like 30 and still having everywhere he goes, people want to talk about John Lennon. It would totally suck, but the like, for instance, when I was on tour in the Balkans. <laughs> they're always this, asking you about john lennon this guy this reporter guy did not come out and interview me but you know the the audience at a let's say a, a julian lennon show um at pianos in new york or whatever on the julian uh, or sean oh i'm sorry sean oh my god even the real son sorry the real son not that not the imposter that looks just like him that sounds just <laughs> like him but the other one uh if you go to a Sean Lennon show on the Lower East Side, yeah, th- there's going to be a certain number of people there who are there uh, just because it's Sean Lennon. But there are also going to be a lot of people there who want to hear his particular brand of quirky, weird indie pop. You know, like he's going to have legitimate fans of his band because it's New York. Mm-hmm. And there are legitimate There's enough fans. people for a fan base for almost anything. Right. If you're consistent. If you are playing in, uh, if you're playing a show in Croatia, like when I played a show in Croatia and a guy came up to me and wanted to talk to me about Chris Walla, there was a part of me that was like, oh God, so you're just here because of, you're just here because this is the closest that Death Cab has come to Croatia recently. Right. But 
I was also grateful for him to be there, you know, like grateful for anybody that's, that gets out of the house and comes to see the show for, for somebody like Sean, uh, I'm sure there are some Croatian fans of his music, but probably about the same as there are Croatian fans of the long winters. Everybody else there is in that weird Eastern European, like John Lennon cult. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is for the rest of his life, unless he like sets a hooker on fire, he's going to be famous for one thing right. by an order of magnitude. And so the solution to his problem is don't leave the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Millions and millions of people never go out from where they and never go four miles from where they were born. Just stay where no one ever stay in a place where no one ever asks you about your dad if it bothers you so much. And even and the, even if he pulls a Clapton and does like a Delaney Bonnie and Friends type thing, he's still going to be remembered. Oh, that's the one with John Lennon's son in it. You know, yeah. like Phantom Planet. People know Phantom Planet because of the guy from Rushmore, right? Right. And the he's OC a very song. Nice guy. Is he? Is he really? Is that honestly true? Really isn't. I'm sorry, I'm in a star fuck, but that's so cool. Jason no, no, no. Schwartzman. Yeah, he's he's a he's a swell guy, and his lady is swell. They're very sweet people. I'm very happy to hear that. I, I, I cut don't, you, off. you know, I don't normally, uh, I don't normally get all you know, waxing like sentimental or sweet about certain celebs, but there are there are a couple I've met that just make me go into this kind of soft voice, oh. where I just, I just feel so. Soft and sweet. And one of them is Jason Schwartzman. God damn. He's, he's very sweet. There's another one. Oh, yeah? Can you give me the initials? P-R. Polly Rambo. Yes. Close. Very close. Oh, wait. Not the woman from PJ Harvey. No, not PJ Harvey. Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So close. PR makes me feel really soft. She feels soft. So nice. Such a nice person that you just can't even believe that they're also a huge star. Pam Madaber. No. Pam, how is Pam? How how was Paul Robeson close to Pam Madaber? <laughs> that's my that's my question for you. You were really close. Her, her parents and changed like, it. They changed it. And then you're like, it's got, a si- it's got a nice, <laughs> it's got, Response. it's got a silent R. It was <laughs> Pam Ramadaber, a witz steamman. Uh, I don't know. Who is it? Paul Rudd. Oh, Paul Rudd. Delightful. That's indeed. so nice to hear. Cause I could oh. I could be real on the bubble about guessing which way that would go. And I'm very happy to hear that. Oh, I just want to marry him. He's such a sweet person. Is he handsome in person? Oh, so handsome. Those eyes mm. and the smile. He just, he, he's very generous with the smile. He's got an easy smile. Easy smile. And, you know, and the thing about the thing that you want Jason Schwartzman to be is generous with the like insider funny, funny banter and like back and forth. Mm-hmm. And he is. Oh. He's generous with the back and forth in the same way that Paul Rudd is generous with the like. The the sweet, appreciative smile. I think that takes, I'm going to guess, I'm going to speculate, I think that takes a lot of character. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of character to to move beyond like, oh, you know, you're the guy from those movies, tell me a Bill Murray story. Like, what, isn't he like, isn't he like the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola or something like that? That's right. That's right. I mean, that must be exhausting. Can you imagine in the early days how exhausting that would have been? All the interviews for, I guess Rushmore was his first big movie. Well, but you think about him. He's also one of these people who should 
uh, validate our, our, our uh, theory about getting famous young. I mean, he was famous as a very young person. Right. S- some might even say born into a royal family. He should be like a Corey level of fucked up. Yeah, he should be terrible. But instead, he's like happily married. His wife is a sweet person also. I mean, I don't want to overstate the degree to which I know these people. But Jason Schwartzman and I have met uh, a handful of times. It's <laughs> the third time you said Jason. Jason Schwartzman. I, the uh, thing is, though, you're going to notice. You're going to notice. You can't help but notice when you meet somebody like that. Like when I met Pete Rose. I met Pete Rose twice, and both times oh, made I, an extremely strong impression. I love those stories. She's, he's the one with the daughter that ain't got no arm. Huh. Was the remark. Huh. Ever tell you that story? I don't know if I've heard that story. Um, when I was a kid, our upstairs neighbors were, uh, this, like some of our best friends and it was a kid exactly my age and his younger daughter. And I think it might've been a thalidomide situation. I see. She had a situation Yep. and she was just a perfectly adorable kid with like a really problematic arm. And, yeah. uh, at one point I was at Pete Rose's restaurant as you do in Cincinnati and, right. he, and Mr. Rose was dining there and, uh, Mom said, don't run over. Wait till he's done eating. You know, he's, he's again, now this is his big dog, right? If he's going to sit yeah. in his own restaurant, you got to expect <laughs> nine-year-old kids to run up and want to yeah. be acknowledged. So yeah. I did. I ran over. You know, he was, he's famously not a super, I don't think, I wouldn't call him an intellectual. Okay. All right. But uh, I ran over and I was like, hey, Pete Rose, uh, 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 Charlie Hustle, and uh, asked him to sign something. He signed it. He has an awesome autograph. And so, oh, and by the way, do you know, deedly, deedly, dee. He's a, he's a scout for the Reds. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. He's the one with the daughter that ain't got no arm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Even as a kid, you, you had to kind of walk away, <laughs> turn, turn slowly and walk away, wondering. <laughs> with giant saucer eyes, I slowly pull the napkin away and say, thank he's, you, Mr. Hustle. He's the one what, what ain't got no arm. <laughs> It was simpler times, simpler players, you know, and he would dive head first into a lot of situations, literally. Yeah, he, he would. I, I was in a restaurant one time, a steakhouse, um, and Michael Jordan was there. And you could feel the energy in the steakhouse. Even the steaks were excited. <laughs> but it was a steakhouse, and this was a, this was a place where everybody else in the, in the place was used to be in the big wheel, the big cheese where they are you know like this expensive place these are these are guys these are barrel-chested guys with the with, with like jewelry guys that wear jewelry let's just say oh that they were all like the biggest frog in their pond they were the nathan, exactly. Ar- the nathan arizona like largest seller of unpainted furniture and uh <laughs> that's right yeah and so it was a little bit like uh like sean uh, ono lennon on the lower east side Michael Jordan was there. Everybody was excited. And it's okay to be excited about Michael Jordan, no matter who you are. And yet, if you're, if you're the, you know, if you're like the, the, uh, the articulated hose, uh, king of (laughs) Snohomish County, you're not going to. Ten years uncontested. You're not going to run over, you know, and like uh, put your napkin down or whatever. So everybody's familiar with my articulated hoses. (laughs) And, and, uh, and Jordan is wearing one of those, uh, one of those suits that has too many buttons. You know what I mean? Like a Nehru collar jacket with like 14 buttons. Which just exaggerates his enormous height. (laughs) And he's a beautiful man. And he is, uh, he's just like, he's poetry in motion. And I'm in there, frankly, to have a steak. I, I, I am, I, you know, I'm a, like, 
sure I'm a fan of uh, Michael Jordan in the in the general sense. But yeah, as I, an institution. Yeah, I don't want anything from him. But it happens that we are. I'm leaving the steak restaurant at the same time that Michael Jordan is, and we are in the and we walk out the door and we are in the alcove. We're basically in the elevator together for a minute, and he doesn't. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I'm just trying to get out the door too. He's just trying to get out the door. We don't have a. We don't have any kind of exchange. But we walk out the door together onto the sidewalk. It's 11:30 at night. And there's an eight-year-old kid standing there with holding a basketball. <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell, unchaperoned. <laughs> this, is, this that's really uh, hard to explain. And I was like, I stopped and watched him, you know, graciously. Uh, although, what are you going to do <laughs> in that situation? <laughs> My hand hurts. You know, sign this kid's basketball, and I and I just can't. Stop looking around like, where did this kid come from? I'm in the middle of the city. It's 11 o'clock at night. How did, where did he get a basketball? And, and, and know that Michael Jordan's walking out of a steakhouse. Know that Michael Jordan is in this place. It doesn't and, add up. And who, got, who brought him here? Who's waiting around the corner? Like, and, and Jordan signs the ball, his entourage all, you know, hardy, hardy, hard. They all walk off down the street. And I'm just standing there looking at this kid and... You know, the kid kind of trails along behind them, just trying to be in Jordan's orbit. And, you know, I kind of, I had places to be. I went the other direction. I never, uh, I never did determine how, where, you know, like how this kid fell from the sky holding a basketball in downtown Seattle in the middle of the night. But I'm going to go with kind of, uh, that's star power. That's star power. I, I'm going to go with somebody uh, who works in the kitchen called their sister who was watching him and said, haul butt over here and bring a basketball. And then stay in the car? Till 1130. Like, right. Because John Roderick is here. And he's ready I, to sign stuff. I bet you. I bet you it was his sister or his sister-in-law and she was waiting in the car because she didn't care. Mm-hmm. And the kid jumps out. That's a, you know, that's a, that is an, uh, an answer to that problem that wouldn't have occurred to me. It's nice. It's nice to see. And, you know, and uh, did, did I cut you off? Not story? at all, no. So, um, so, I don't know how this happened. I've been playing the Beatles for my daughter, you know, forever, hoping, you know, that it'll catch that, on. That it'll take. Yeah, I don't, I don't want, I'm not a pill about that many things. Like, if there's a certain comic she doesn't like, don't worry. Like, we're not going to make a big deal about that. But, like, I've, I, I feel I've been like reading. She, I've been reading The Watchmen to my daughter, <gasps> hoping that. That's terrific. Is she yeah. is she really connecting with Silk Spectre too? She really. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like uh, Rorschach is her is her spirit spirit animal. <laughs> Rorschach's great. He's, he's the best. Um, anyway, so you're playing the Beatles for your daughter. You know, I've been doing that forever, and like, in fact, there's certain kind, there's certain records that would like go into rotation for certain events. Like, you know, for what we graduated from Toy Story to always listening to. Um, that Queen, like Best of Queen album, when I pick her up from school, to where yeah. she could like sing, you know, Somebody to Love, which practically made me cry. It was so great. Uh-oh. But then we got into uh, a side one of uh, the White Album we would listen to a lot. So she's she knows the Beatles a little bit. I was looking at A uh, Hard Day's Night. It was after bath time. It was not official TV time. It was I, I shouldn't have had the TV on. It was a you know an attractive nuisance. And she came out and she started watching A Hard Day's Night and she thought it was a riot. 
Understand, this is a kid whose favorite movie right now is Duck Soup. So she she loved. She thought it was hilarious. And and so yeah, I could tell when she's really into it because when there's a line, whether she understands the line or not, she'll turn to me with a giant grin and repeat the line to me. Uh-huh. He says his grandfather's very clean. Why does he say he's very clean? And and but she loved it. And so I, I this was concomitant with me going back and rewatching the anthology videos. I've been watching hours and hours and hours of the nineties anthology videos, which are, you know, a hundred percent Beatles approved and everything. Yeah. But still just going back and watching hmm, somewhere between the second and fourth episodes when Beatlemania really kicks in. The other, uh, last night we were watching these together and I was showing her the circa 64, uh, Fe- February 64 arriving in America. And I was like, sh- or like showing them at Shea Stadium when they couldn't, they didn't have, they didn't have monitors as George Martin points out. They didn't have monitors. Ringo couldn't hear, nobody could hear anything. Their vocals would bounce back in like a second and a half. Can you imagine you're sitting there every night and there's people running at you. You have police literally protecting people from running at you and you have no idea what they want. Yeah. I mean, I, and I said to my daughter, like, what do you think of that? And she's like, wow, they, they had to put up a fence. That's crazy. Everybody's running around. I was like, I said, you know, to her and my wife, I was like, to me, that would be really fun for about an hour. And that would yeah. be about all that I would need of that to be to where like you, you can't even like go into a hotel hallway, let alone the lobby, let alone a steakhouse. Your life is just gone. It's made me really rewatching that. I mean, I know, I I know this, but it really makes me reappreciate somebody who is a smart ass and slightly depressed person like John, like appreciating like what life must have turned into for those guys. I mean, it's an obvious, you know, 50 year old point, but it's, it's bananas to see how crazy it really was and how their lives were completely turned upside down by it. Do you remember the first time you saw Hard Day's Night? I feel, I don't remember specifically, I feel like I might have seen it in college. We had a bunch of laser discs at our media center, and I think I might have watched it there, but I, I think I saw it in my 20s. Very, I, uh, you know, early on in the, like, go rent a VHS tape at a at a VHS rental place, um, which would have been in high school, like... Video rental stores didn't blow up until much later, but there was one in Anchorage early on uh, in high school for me. And one copy of Eating Raul and A Hard Day's Night. (laughs) Eating Raul, My Dinner with Andre. Uh, That was frequently available. uh, Yeah, right. And and, uh, uh, no, no, there, there was a store and we definitely went to it because I remember they, my friend sent me to get a movie one time and I uh, brought back um uh what's the one about the the morbid death obsessed kid and his 80 year old girlfriend Harold and Maud right i brought back Harold and Maud and all my friends were like excited to curl up on the couch together and drink a couple of strows and watch robots blow shit up <laughs> <laughs> yeah right or or that was even before robots blowing shit up but you know they wanted to watch a uh they, they boobs, wanted me to boobs get, and pillow fights <laughs> yeah caddyshack or yeah and porkies and I, I brought back Harold and Maude and, you know, and half the people fell asleep and the other half just stayed awake out of pure fury at me. <laughs> uh, and I was like, this movie's amazing. And I was like, I was banned forever. But w- w- one of those little parties, probably ninth or 10th grade, we watched A Hard Day's Night. And I was already a Beatles fan. But, you know, the, the, the excitement that is captured in that movie, the charm of those guys mm-hmm. and the, and the fact, as you're saying that, that they were, they were having a completely unprecedented experience 
uh, unprecedented in human history, except maybe, but and maybe maybe Napoleon uh, had a similar. Well, people like Hitler. like uh, what like Rudy Valley and Frank Sinatra had had it, but you know not on like that international level that they were well, right. And, and I mean, those guys would like walk out the stage door of the Paramount Theater on uh, you know Broadway and Forty Second, and there would be a, a a mob of girls. Let's say even a thousand girls. But there were there, women. Uh, I was showing. I was saying to Eleanor, "This is when they get their MBEs, right? When they got those. Uh, the Queen yeah. gave them their awards, and there, I, I'm sitting there and watching teenage girls literally climbing over the 20 foot gates at Buckingham Palace. Can you yeah. imagine if you did that today? It's completely, oh, yeah. right. completely bananas, and the, the bodies you, you are losing their hats. By a drone, <laughs> exactly. But you know, there may be a reason, Merlin, that we talk so much about the Beatles and Hitler on this program. I'm listening <laughs> because. In in our in in our formative years, the two the, the, they are the two modern figures, the Beatles being one of a piece, right? The two modern figures that have generated that amount of mass adulation, like the Beatles, the, those crowd scenes and and people freaking out about the Beatles, and then the the you know, the Nuremberg rallies and the torchlight rallies, like they are of a family and they don't have, there's, there's no third equivalent, right? Stalin and Mao had cults of personality, but they didn't have rapturous followers. Yeah. When you see people like in a, in the early days, and again, this is before the manuf, the total manufacture of these kinds of scenes. You just see those, uh, women in dirndls like leaning out, like with flowers, looking like they were losing their mind. Yeah. Like he was a rock star. Hitler yeah, was a absolutely. rock star. So, so, but what's so amazing about A Hard Day's Night is every subsequent movie, like concert movie, uh, rock, rock band movie about a young, musician getting famous it ha- is taking place in a post hard day's night world mm-hmm. right every subsequent person to get massively famous knows that the beatles have done this already and every a- a- everywhere they go people are saying you're as big as the beatles and everybody knows that that's a lie right like like to be compared to the beatles is the highest compliment you can pay to somebody those people and, never replaced the beatles in terms of those comparisons yeah nobody right. ever said they sold more records than elvis and slim whitman combined yeah nobody no there's no new equivalent and i wonder how long in human history there will be how long it will take before there is before that resets and there's no institutional memory of the beatles right and it and there's a new person who becomes the the person who's bigger than jesus but 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 what's incredible about that about a hard day's night for me is that all of that is going on and they they have a kind of smug confidence but they also are so so charming and self-effacing and small still you know what i mean like yeah. like they are still teasing ringo and ringo could still could still honestly be kind of the lonely one or whatever you know like uh i don't know there, there's something about it that that I, I think about every rock documentary i've seen since then and the and everybody is so knowing now and so self-aware and so 
the smugness overtakes uh, all the, you know, uh, overshadows the charm that got them there. Right. And it, it shouldn't have been anywhere near as successful as a piece of art um, as it is. I mean, because it's pretty, it's really, I think it's a very bold movie, even to this yeah, day. It's but, so but, fresh. And the grandfather is so perfect. It's just his expressions in that movie the are ending, so goddamn funny. I hate the ending of A Hard Day's Night. Does it really, end? It ends, exactly. Nobody even knows. It ends with the helicopter flying off and they, and they're throwing out the fake signed photographs. Oh. Aspinall is throwing the, throwing but, they the, got, they, the but the beauty part is like, you think about any of the rock and roll movies before that, and they were closer to what I would think of as a review. The kind of things you'd see on Broadway in the twenties and thirties, a collection of songs, you know, being performed with only the loosest narrative involved. Right. And in this, I mean, it's so great that they were able to capitalize on the image of the Beatles as being popular without it being stupid and without it being smug for the most part. And so fresh. It didn't hurt also that the songs were pretty great. Yeah, the songs are all right. And they're also cute. But I, but it, it makes me <clears throat> it makes me think. I was having a conversation with a good friend of ours the other day. And I was I was kind of reducing my theory of performance fame and performance to a kind of binary code as we like to do two kinds of people in this world that ends well winners losers <laughs> two two kinds of people in this world here's the thing about fame <laughs> living dying mm-hmm. um two kinds of trouble in this world sorry uh and and what i kind of realized was that most of most of the performers i know can be uh, their motivation can be described either as uh, being primarily in order to have people love them, right? Like we we all know a lot of performers who who want love. It's like a validation based well, motivation. But wait, wait, that that that's the uh, I would describe that as the other. Okay. So to be loved is a kind of pure experience in and of itself that doesn't it isn't um it doesn't have a a a a a further motivation beyond just like the feeling of that wall of adoration so somebody knows who you are and they like what you do and they like you and they're like you yeah right they are projecting like on you and you are experiencing that like and that feeling is so positive that it you know, it becomes a kind of addiction. You don't want to get off the stage. You'll go up on any stage because it gives you an opportunity to, to have exposure to that like, right? And I would put Paul McCartney in that category. Paul has an uncomplicated relationship with stardom. He likes it. He wants to be liked and he he knows he's likable and then the other motivation is to be what the way i described it the other day was to be proved right or to be validated (laughs) right and if you think if you think about just sitting here blindly speculating on which one you are well i think i'm absolutely somebody who wants to be vindicated and i think John Lennon was also somebody who wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to be proved right 
and all the adulation was in the in the service of a of a secondary goal he you know like sure he liked feeling the love but but more importantly he wanted to be proved right and you know sadly that was also hitler's motivation he wanted to be he wanted to be proved right more than he wanted difficult to be childhood no strong father figure loves to paint mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when you think about <laughs> it's when, all lining up when you think about like like i think ringo probably just wanted to be loved and i think george harrison wanted to be vindicated and if you go and look at every sort of famous person and the way they carry themselves and the way they handle their fame you can see this pretty clear uh, people shade one way or the other. Do they want to be loved first, and you know, or do they do they have something to prove? Do they want to be do they want to be proved right? And the sad thing is, both things seem bottomless. Right? You can always be loved more, and you can never actually fully be proved right. Yeah, <clears throat> and they, they, you, there's no way to ever get enough of that. And I, I think Paul. I mean, I'm sure it was trying for everybody, but Paul even says as much that he was the one who was still having a pretty good time through through a lot of that. You know, Ringo was it was frustrating to Ringo because when he's playing live, you couldn't hear what he was doing. He felt like he wasn't getting better as a musician. Yeah. But you know, you're right. On the one hand, you in, in your model, um, in the what, what do you call the first one to be loved? To be loved versus to be vindicated. Yeah. Well, to be loved uh, is I don't want to say it's not hard, but it doesn't require a lot of sophistication from the person who's loving you. Like having one more person who loves you versus the number that you had yesterday is is a win. But with vindication, there's always somebody you wish had to admit that they were wrong and apologize for what right. happened before. So you know it's it th- th- again. There's no there's no limit to that as well. But think about like with, with John. I mean, there's that period in like 1906. They had a pretty, as much as good as their records were, they had a rough patch for a couple of years for a lot of reasons. Mm. I, I, I guess I didn't realize how big the Jesus remark was. Like, mm-hmm. what a big deal that was, and how taken out of context it was. And now it's all this. But uh, that, um, but that was a rough patch for them. And John was unhappy. He called it his fat Elvis phase, where he was depressed and felt like he was a fat guy and nobody loved him. Mm-hmm. But but you know, even at the point where now you got all the love that you could want, and then you just got to keep doing what you're doing to keep being loved. But with the vindication, like, I wonder if there's a certain cutoff point where it just turns to a certain kind of bitterness because well, there's was, no amount of vindication that can make it worthwhile, especially if you're a basically cynical person, like I think he you, was. You could see that in his relationship to Dylan, right? Because Dylan, like, uh, who could the Beatles possibly envy? They envied Dylan because Dylan was vindicated more than loved and there's that there so as a result of this like some artists want to be loved some want to be vindicated there's also two kinds of fame and dylan had had the best in my estimation and i think in a lot of our estimations the better kind of fame which was the 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 vindication fame right all the critics loved him he set a new bar he was the voice of a generation he was meaningful and after and a certain time you no longer had to have an argument about whether bob dylan was one of the most important artists of the time that's vind- yeah. vindication is when you can say well i don't like the beatles but i'm not going to dispute their sales numbers and their critical acclaim that's vindication right at a certain point is that you nobody can really important. dispute what you've what you've managed to accomplish 
Yeah, and so Lenin Lenin perceived himself to be sort of in second place to Dylan as the uh, the voice of the truth, right? The hard-edged voice of the truth. He didn't see himself as, I think, probably within the Beatles, he was he was more and more resentful of Paul's effortless songwriting, but but the way that that resentment took shape was that he thought Paul was a was an intellectual lightweight and he was comparing Paul not to himself but to Dylan in terms of like who what what you know like remember what they when they saw when they saw him when they saw Dylan at Royal Albert Hall and you could hear a pin drop mm-hmm. and they were like thinking of their own careers where they couldn't even hear themselves play and the idea that an audience would go and sit, you know, reverently like that was such a was such a contrast. And and to somebody who wants vindication, who wants to be proved right, that must have been the hardest thing for Lenin to to watch, you know. And and strangely, like I mean, Dylan Dylan won the the vindication lottery and what did it do to that man you know it turned him into really a troll that lives under a bridge yeah it's it's it, like like people i guess kind of like lou reed or like at sometimes john lennon it became this contest of like oh you think you you think you can love that impossible thing well let me make this next impossible thing it, it will be impossible <laughs> for you to love self portrait here you're welcome <laughs> yeah I I I feel like uh I wish there was a third way. I'm tired of wanting to be vindicated. Yeah. Are, I, you, some, are you really? Well, somebody asked me the other day like who are the people that you want to who are the, who are the people you want to be proved right to? And I you know, I was thinking about where what the generation of it was the the genesis and it was all it's all back in school where yeah, the, of course where the, the you know the teachers and the guidance counselors somebody and the who made students. fun of the white out on your jean jacket yeah nobody got me and they punished me and i'm like you know a lot of those people are dead now i who am i i'm just i am just trying to prove I'm trying to be proved right to some proxy of them, some some big picture, oh, so some, like, some avatar of a bully. Yeah, the teachers, the schools, the government, and the people. Ultimately, you know, the conventional wisdom. And what I can, it's an unreachable goal. I'll never be. I will if that is my standard of achievement. Uh, that that I, I I cannot rest or feel like I've done a good job in life unless I have rewritten history <laughs> and they model the schools on me. Uh, <laughs> the the chances and and then when if that does happen when you, and might, if you, that when happens, you get it you might say the portrait's unflattering. Yeah, I'll just be like no. Getting well, slurry. <laughs> I suppose, but there's so much more I could have done. You know, like I, I, I don't feel like that is a winning strategy for uh, short-term or long-term happiness. To want to, 
show them. It's a big the vindication hole is is a big thing to fill, and yeah. so it's the love hole. But you know, I, I got a theory on this. I'm not a successful person, but like if I were, I think what I would want in life is, and this 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 is not what it sounds like. I'm not saying do what you love. I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying any of that shit. What I'm saying is like to me, a certain measure of success has to involve two things: that your life becomes for me, your life becomes less rather than more complex. And you like the way you spend your day. So to me, like in that, that doesn't mean you don't do things you don't like. It means if you're a filmmaker and you think you have to love your job, well, get ready. You're going to have to deal with this key grip over here. And then this is what we got for daylight left. And this is what the budget is for mustaches or whatever it is. But I would say, you know, the, not just when some people talk about, oh, do you like what you do? Well, I think, you know, one marker is, do you like how you spend your day? And if you like spending your day making this kind of music and then promoting it and getting on Twitter or whatever, or, or going out and then performing that music or dealing with revisions to the liner notes and all that kind of stuff, to me, that's a certain kind of success that's much more inward turning than like how other people reacted to it. And if you can get the vindication and the love out of doing something, I sound like Jerry Lewis, the vindication and the love of, of what it is that you're making, that's a good thing. But like, there are a lot of people out there who, who are getting constantly more hugely re-vindicated all the time, but they, I think they still kind of hate the way they spend their day, and they mm. become bitter people. I would like if there was just a tube inserted into my stomach mm-hmm. that allowed me to sit and eat a continuous stream of single peanut M&Ms. Mm. And yet, they would just then go out. I could I could eat them, and crunch them, yeah, and taste them, and feel them go down, right. But then they would just keep going out. You, you need the like tube. a like a selective um, like ostomy bag. You need yeah, something right. that can look for bioavailable uh, single bite M M&M and M pieces and know what to sort out. Leave the water, mm-hmm. you know. Leave well, the see, beef. And, the, and I guess the question that I have is what use. In a, in a kind of super trained context, mm-hmm. if I was producing a very small stream of masticated nut chocolate candy paste, like pre-digested, but post-salivated, post-chewed, like what is that paste worth? Right. And depending what, on what use you find for it, it's obviously it's probably not going to be a great lubricant. Right. You could, I, maybe could use, it would be a good spackle or uh, like a... It could, in cold weather climates, sure. I don't know if that'd be brittle. I don't know what the see performance what qualities are, but you could also uh, turn it into something that you give to children who don't know where it's been. Mm-hmm. Kids mm-hmm. are pretty cool about a lot of different kinds of foods as long as they don't know much about it. Well, let's say you put, let's say so it becomes a kind of almond paste or like peanut butter almost. Like it, It's almost Nutella. Wait a minute. Hmm? Is that what Nutella is? Oh boy, sure, sure, sure looks like it. Has anybody ever seen Nutella being made? No. You can put any kind of nut on a jar legally. It doesn't have to have anything to do with, with what's actually in it. I, I think if you smashed a hazelnut, it would not look like Nutella. If you took hazelnut, if you ate peanut M and M's and hazelnuts, mm-hmm. and then and chewed them and swallowed them, mm. and then sucked them out through a tube. How different from Nutella would that be? I think mostly indistinguishable. I'm not a scientist. Mostly indistinguishable. Mm. You you would be a bespoke uh, confectionery treat uh, extruding unit. A treat extruding unit. You just chop them into little bits like Tootsie Rolls. Yeah, what's in a what's in a fucking Tootsie Roll? Is that chocolate? No. Is it caramel? No, nah, not really. Hmm. Like what the fuck is that? I didn't think about that either. I, I you know I'm 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 just I'm guessing that somewhere down the food chain, like up at the top, there's me. Who likes to eat 
peanut M&Ms. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere down the food chain for me is somebody someone who's who, not picky. <laughs> someone who likes to eat a kind of spreadable, soft oh, M&M flavored uh, material. And then they could have a similar tube. And somewhere down the line from them, there's somebody who wants a real smooth, creamy, um, you know, condensed. Yes. Uh, maybe like, maybe yeah. something, something for the older folks who can't chew very well, but still like a little bit of, uh, of a fake nut taste in, in their sluiced uh, dessert. So N- Nutella is an Italian uh, uh, food. Is it? It's Italian? It's Italian. I've it's never a- understood the Nutella cult. I've never under. I know it's a thing, and people are going to go. Oh, Nutella. Have you ever really tried it? Have you ever tried it on rye bread or whatever? No, I haven't. <laughs> have you had it on? Uh, have you have you had it on uh, communion? No, no. I, I just I'm not at all interested in Nutella, and here's why. I'm not interested in Nutella for very much the same reason. You talk about fucking validation. You ever go into your uh, go into your mom's refrigerator back in the day, and it, you see something that says something something chocolate? But it's uh-huh. baker's chocolate. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you go, oh my fucking god! How have I lived in this house for seven years and never noticed there's fucking chocolate in the refrigerator? And right. you woof it down, and it's, it's literally the most disgusting and bitter thing you've ever had in your life. And it's a total abortion. And you can't believe they were legally allowed to put chocolate even on the label. Right. That's kind of how I feel about Nutella. Nutella. It's got the performance qualities of peanut butter, but it's made out of something that's not chocolate. Nutella debuted. In 1964, it is a modern abomination. It's a Beatles age, yeah, spreadable treat. Yeah, April 64. When did when did uh, when did Love Me Do hit? Right about that same time. Uh, three, two or three months earlier is when the Beatles came to the U.S. Yeah, the Beatles. And that's not. Nutella. That's no coincidence. I don't think it is a coincidence. Also, Italy. Uh, Hitler worked with the Italians in the Axis. See what I'm saying? Italy, post-war Italy has had like 750 governments. I had a girlfriend in college back in the days when you couldn't get Nutella so easy. Back in the 80s, I guess it wasn't as widespread. And she would squee when her parents sent her a care package that had Nutella in it. It was like the happiest day of her life. I got a care package today from a Polish girl living in Germany that has like 14 different kinds of lint chocolate balls. (laughs) I thought you were going to stop at lint. 14 different kinds of lint. 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 That sounds and, delicious, John. Yeah, and there was also a lunchbox in it full of cookies. And the lunchbox, uh, like a tin, pressed tin lunchbox that commemorates D-Day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, my, my, uh, my Polish doctor friend living in Berlin, sent me a... That's uh, the actual a, German word, too. Sent me a lunch bo- a D-Day lunchbox full Pol- of cookies. Polish Dr. Freude. <laughs> Polska... Polska, oh, sorry. Doctor. Fro- fro- uh, now, doctor Freunde, professor. is Freunde girlfriend? A Freund, Freund is just friend. Mm-hmm. Maybe Freunde is girlfriend. I don't know. Scheiße. I That's really, so nice. Freunde Scheiße. Freunde Scheiße. Uh, yeah, she's a doctor professor, uh, and... Um, and today yeah, I have this beautiful box of beautiful That's a treats. work, John. That's a lot of separate pieces to put together to make one care package. That's a very sweet gesture. It did. And you know, the, the, the thing that I, the problem that I often have is that I uh, wish that I utilized the mails more to send beautiful things to people. I have, I have things mm-hmm. lying around that I could send to people who would appreciate them. Ah, oh, you gotta have scale for an operation like that. That's the thing. And I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to use the mails uh, uh, partly because for instance 
I still have not solved my tooth problem, which is now seven years in the offing. Are you still temp- technically temporary? I still have a temporary tooth that's just that's just glued in there with like safety pins. It's like you never got your plastic library card. You're still using yeah. that little flimsy guy, and that still does, does that just break sometimes? Oh yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, any day it could break. It could break right now. A pigeon could fly in the window, hit me in the face, break my tooth. <laughs> and uh, and so there are all these like things I want to do in life. I want to change the schools. I want to uh, ride on a tank into Paris. <laughs> I want to get my tooth fixed, and I want to use the mails to send nice things to people. I hope and- you have a whiteboard you're reading off of. <laughs> And I cannot, I cannot manage even the smallest detail. Uh, and now I have gone, I had, a, I had an assistant, then she passed the baton to a second assistant. Now the second assistant is very clearly uh, uh, needing to pass the baton to a, a further assistant, a third assistant. It has only been six months since I even began this assistant business. And I've already had three of them. That's and a I, lot of churn. And I don't think it's my fault. Oh. I don't. Uh-huh. I don't. I have a pretty good sense of when it's my fault. Have you made them agree with that? Uh, you know, I, the, everybody has their own narrative. <laughs> I can't impose my narrative on other people. It but seems I've been like watching, a cherry job. I've been watching. <laughs> I've been watching very closely. And I've been I've been checking my privilege on an hourly basis, and I am pretty confident that I have not been the reason. But then again, mm. who knows? They might not say, except on a message board somewhere. Yeah. The second assistant, the reason that I need now a third assistant is that I got the second assistant, or, you know, didn't get, but like made a nice recommendation uh, to someone who gave the second assistant a proper job. Which now is occupying like eighty hours a week of her Jesus, time. Jesus, John, so, and they keep propagating new assistants. Sounds well, like sounds the, like fruit flies. That's the thing. I think that it's just. A, I think it's a thing where you you have to go through three or four people who are like, "I want to be your assistant," before you find the person who says, "I am your assistant." Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You feel me? I do. I, I told you this a long time ago. I knew a guy. I'm not saying this is a great strategy, but I knew a guy who hired several people. Agreeing that he would basically pay them for a certain amount, like a month or whatever, and then he just winnowed them down, like Patan style, until oh. he got down to the last one and said, "Everybody else, one at a time." He'd say, "Okay, you're out of this elimination. I got three left. You got two left. Fight with the pool cue. One of yeah, you wins." Right. I was thinking of I would just break a pool cue and throw it on the floor and say, "I can only hire one of you." <laughs> Why <Mine's> so serious? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have my bell. I don't have my bell. I got you covered. Welcome back. <laughs> 